Welcome back, goblins! You're listening to the Esoteric News Briefs. Before we get started, I'm recording in the middle of a windstorm, so I apologize for any background noise. We'll just call it ambiance, right? Yes, ambiance. Anyway, tonight we have Secrets of the Supernatural, Alien Radio, a newly excavated Viking temple, and more. But first, I want to welcome my new international listeners from Australia, Germany, and Norway. Welcome, weirdos. I'm glad to have you. Now, let's get started. Secrets of the Supernatural, a National Geographic Special Edition, originally published in 2019, re-released in 2020. Where do I start? This magazine is... well, it's not great. In fact, it's not even good. The entire thing is written as if it were a series of BuzzFeed-style clickbait infographics. The chapters, if you want to call them that, are peppered with top 10 inserts, and the articles are rarely more than four paragraphs long, most of which span less than two pages, including their photos. The information is what you would find from Wikipedia, distilled down to the equivalent of a few sound bites, and paired with stock photos from the Nat Geo archive. That said, I paid 15 bucks for this travesty, so you're going to hear all about it. The introduction wasn't bad. It was the introduction, after all, so no one really anticipates much depth from the writing. The magazine doesn't take long to show its complete lack of care for the subject, though. The first article, entitled Healing and Miracles, has the contents of a photo completely misidentified on page 8. It states... Animal vertebrae, pebbles, a hoof, carved bone, and a nutshell can be found in an African medicine man's bag. Let's start with the obvious. What part of Africa did this come from? Africa is a continent, not a country. Practices in Egypt are very different from those found in the Congo, Angola, or South Africa. This overly reductive description sets the theme for the entire publication. But I digress. What else is wrong with this photo? To start with, there are no animal vertebrae in it. In fact, the bones depicted are astragali, the knuckle bones of ungulate animals, those with cloven hooves like sheep, goats, and pigs. These bones have been widely used throughout the world for various types of divinatory practices. Of the 15 items depicted, not counting the bag itself, 11 of them are astragali. Furthermore, these are items used in divination, not for healing or performing miracles. The next problem is when the author broadly refers to all traditional healers as shaman. Shaman may be widely used by lay people in this manner, but a publication such as National Geographic should know that the term shaman refers to a singular type of traditional healer found with the Sami people of the Arctic Circle. You know, the ones that herd reindeer? Those guys. You would think that an article like this, that is already broadly referencing miraculous healing around the world, would cover a diversity of healing modalities. Nope. It quickly devolves into a study of faith healing done at sites where the Virgin Mary has been seen in visions. After going on that tangent, the article then outlines the placebo effect and how healing is sometimes really just all in our heads. And this was just the first article. 
The next article begins on page 12. Yes, you heard that correctly. It begins only four pages after the first. If you eliminated all the photos that accompanied Healing and Miracles, the entire composition would be less than two pages long. It consisted of five paragraphs, the introduction, two on various cultures around the world that have healing practices, and one on Marian visions, a sacred site, and a conclusion that attributes all of this to the placebo effect. That said, the next few articles are so minimalist that they aren't even worth summarizing. So I'm going to jump to page 16 and the article Communing with the Spirits and Divination. This is where the very first photo should have gone. But again, I digress. It begins by referencing the Bible and the interpretation of dreams, known as oniromancy. It then goes into the Oracle of Delphi and how she likely was inhaling ethylene gas from volcanic vents beneath the temple grounds. So far, so good, right? Then the author turns to the ghost dance, practiced by multiple plains tribes in North America. It was initially created and performed by Wodzawob, a Paiute prophet dreamer, and later popularized by Wovoka, also a Paiute religious leader. This ceremony gained popularity with the Lakota tribes, eventually being the impetus behind the Wounded Knee Massacre, although official reasons were that the cavalry was attempting to disarm the tribesmen. I also want to point out how recent this massacre actually was. Wounded Knee took place in 1890, only 24 years before the outbreak of World War I. That's less than one generation. Our grandparents and great-grandparents would have been raised hearing stories of Wounded Knee the same way that many of us grew up hearing about the Korean or Vietnam Wars. That said, apparently I expected too much from this article, because as soon as it mentions the ghost dance, it erroneously claims that it is no longer performed. And then the article just ends. Seriously, there's no close or conclusion. It simply stops. The next article of any note begins on page 34 and is entitled The Left Hand Path. I saw this title and got excited. Are we finally going to get something interesting? No, not so much. The article immediately starts by defining black and white magic. Why is this problematic? There has been a lot of focus being paid to how we talk about and phrase things, especially in the esoteric and magical community. The idea of black and white magic is very outdated and is honestly more cinematic than historical. The best analogy I can come up with is the medication nitroglycerin. Nitro pills are used in an emergency medicine situation by people with heart conditions. Too much, and it will instead cause heart problems. The active chemical in nitro pills is the same used in explosives. So how does this apply to magic? It's all about application and moderation. Stereotypical white magic, in excess, can cause as much damage and harm as any black magic. The article then continues to talk about a few different types of historical, quote, black magic, such as defixions, an inscribed lead plate used in ancient Greece. These plates usually targeted a person's enemies and were then buried. What I personally find funny is that there have been recent finds of defixions in privy pits. Maybe I'm just childish, but I think that's hilarious. 
The author briefly mentions Australian Aborigines using cursed bones, much like we think of magic wands being used, and of course, voodoo dolls. Because why wouldn't we simply devolve into pop culture references? There is a brief mention of the Seal of Solomon the King, who was reported to have summoned and enslaved demons to construct his temple. There is a brief interlude to talk about a few different types of demons around the world, and then, like a History Channel special, the article turns to Nazis. What's really sad is that this is probably the only article of any merit in this publication. I did learn an entertaining factoid, though. It seems that in World War II, Germany was so enamored with astrology that British air forces airdropped fake horoscopes on the populace to demoralize their forces. I'm going to conclude this review with the only informational top five list in the entire magazine, one on vampires. The first is the Lugaru from the Caribbean. This creature looks like a little old lady during the day, but she sheds her skin at night to hunt. The way you defeat her is to locate her shed skin and fill it with salt, which will burn her when she returns to once again don her costume. Next is the Jiangxi of China, commonly known as the Leaping Vampires. I don't know about anyone else, but this description always made me think that they were vampires just kind of bouncing around rather than running or walking. Instead, they're actually pretty terrifying. Picture an undead creature with large, bulging eyes, perched atop its tomb or grave marker, crouched down like a cat ready to pounce. When a victim comes within range, they lunge at them, knocking them to the ground so they can easily consume them. Germany, of course, doesn't disappoint. They gave us the Noxerer. This creature is formed when a person is buried in a shroud that belongs to another corpse. They crawl from their grave, take the form of a pig, and follow people around, stealing their energy. I just picture a couple German peasants walking through town. One looks at the other and says, Hey, where did that creepy pig come from? The other just shakes his head and groggily replies, I don't know, but I could really use a nap. The Vatala from India is the result of an improperly buried child. The corpse returns with a face like a fruit bat and long poisonous claws. There wasn't much information on this one, but it seems like the claws were a bigger concern than anything else this creature may do. At least, the way to eliminate this creature is fairly simple. Exhume the corpse and give it a proper burial. Granted, at this point, you'll be reburying Bat Boy, but at least the attacks will stop. The final vampire on this list is a bit questionable. The Biblical Lilith, Adam's first wife. I had to go outside the publication to get a bit more information. In texts, she was created from the same clay from which Adam was formed. She refused to be subservient to her husband and was cast out of Eden. Scholars believe that she is attributed to a much older class of Assyrian demon. She isn't really associated with vampirism, at least until the Latin Vulgate Bible conflates her with the child-stealing monsters known as Lamia. Even then, she is considered to be a sorceress in association with various abominations, such as Lamia and Strigoi, not necessarily a vampire herself. But hey, four out of five isn't bad, right? Look, this special edition was terrible. 
and frankly, National Geographic should be ashamed for even releasing it, let alone re-releasing it this year. It's trite, packed full of errors, and leans far too heavily on pop culture lore rather than anything historic. The best part of it was the last 13 pages, which was dedicated entirely to aliens, which somehow are included under the heading of Supernatural. I guess by the strictest definition they could be, but honestly, I think they just needed to fill space. <laughs> Get it? Aliens? Fill space? Ugh. In response to how bad this magazine was, here are several options for better use of the $15 you were going to spend on it. The first is for anyone interested in paganism or witchcraft. I suggest anything from the Pagan Portal series by Moon Books. This series of booklets costs about $10 and are roughly 100 pages of concentrated information on a specific subject. Specifically, I would suggest What is Modern Witchcraft? Contemporary Developments in the Ancient Craft, edited by Trevor Greenfield. Beyond that title, you have a slew of authors who are dedicated to their practice, including the amazing Morgan Daimler, who takes pagan scholarly research to a whole new level. If you want a survey of monsters, you can get the title Cryptozoology A to Z, the Encyclopedia of Lock Monsters, Sasquatch, Chupacabras, and Other Authentic Mysteries of Nature by Lauren Coleman. If you want a scholarly look at medieval and Kabbalistic magic, I would recommend the YouTube channel Esoterica. Technically, that one is free, but the guy also has a Patreon, so a donation of $15 would be far more beneficial than spending it on Secrets of the Supernatural. In short, there's better ways to spend your money than on this National Geographic special. You'd get better, more accurate information from any of the sources that I just recommended. But enough of that, let's move on. Want to talk to aliens? Try changing the technological channel beyond just radio. From scientificamerican.com The organization SETI, or the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, has relied on radio telescopes to find technological signs of alien life since its inception. Though recently, scientists have begun to think that we may have to change what type of signals we search for. Within our own terrestrial technology, humans have progressed to a stage where radio signals, when used, are more controlled and not casually flung into the cosmos. Using our own technology as a model, it is believed that we will only be able to detect signals such as radio waves when the technology is relatively new to the alien civilization that's using it. Think about it. Terrestrial radio has only been in use since roughly the year 1900. Now, in the year 2020, we are producing far fewer unregulated radio signals. If an alien civilization is producing signals such as these, and only producing them for roughly 100 years, and we miss it, it doesn't mean that the civilization isn't there it's simply no longer projecting a detectable signal. Until recently, the Drake Equation has been used to estimate the number of intelligent species in the known universe. While it may be a good measure of life, 
it doesn't necessarily translate well into the detection of alien signals. Marcelo Lares of the National University of Cordoba, Argentina, has worked with his colleagues to create a new mathematical equation to estimate the number of civilizations with detectable signals. This new model has three parts. One, the awakening of the civilization, one it's producing detectable signals. Two, the strength of those signals. And three, the lifetime of said signals. He compared this model to viewing twinkling lights on a Christmas tree. Sometimes the lights are on, and sometimes they're off. The string of lights that blink at random may not be communicating with one another, but if all the lights turn on at the same time and remain on, it shows a shared method of communication. It also creates a more powerful signal that is detectable for a longer period of time. This methodology stands in opposition of the Fermi paradox, which essentially asks why, if space is so expansive, we haven't detected an alien signal yet. With this new way of thinking, we now have to take into consideration the vastness of space, time, and the fact that we may not even know what we're looking for. Scientists have attempted to look for other signs of life, such as high-intensity lasers or Dyson spheres, massive mechanical structures built around a star, but so far, to no avail. Largely, our search is limited by our human imagination. If we have not conceived of a communication method, we obviously can't search for it. Lares says that, for this reason, SETI needs to utilize a multidisciplinary approach, using physicists, biologists, and philosophers. While it may seem more like science fiction, or even just a thought experiment, brainstorming methods of communication may be just what allows us to contact alien intelligence in the future. The next article is entitled, Photos, How the World is Reinventing Rituals, presented by NPR.com. While podcasts are not a visual medium, this article did produce a nice variety of rituals that are being adapted for a world that is in the midst of a global pandemic. There are several images of different sermons and graduations being performed for an empty or severely limited audience. The first image that really caught my attention, though, was one that, for me, really defines the word ritual. It shows five wooden pyres about three feet tall, made from split logs, arranged in octagonal stacks. On top of each is a series of offerings to the Bolivian Earth Mother Goddess Pachimama. The next image, related to the interest of this podcast, is an image of a Wiccan high priest performing the ritual for Lunasa. The caption states that normally 13 people participate, but the remaining 12 are participating from home. The most poignant photo, for me, is the final one of this series. In it, a man in a paramedic's uniform stands alone in the center of a massive, completely empty mosque, his head bowed in prayer. The evening light casts everything in a yellow hue, and his shadow stretches to the far wall. He spoke with the photographer earlier, talking about how he was at the scene of an accident, and it was difficult at the best of times to work during Ramadan because of the fasting. But it was even more stressful now due to the pandemic. 
If any photo in this set captures the mental exhaustion found during this pandemic, this is it. I'll post a link to the article in the show notes so you too can see the photos for yourself. Sensational find of pagan temple remains in Norway from lifeinnorway.net Archaeologists from the University Museum of Bergen have been excavating a property in Orsta, Norway, and recently revealed that the property once contained one of only a few known Viking-era pagan temples. This structure was different from surrounding longhouses, which had two rows of support beams, creating three distinct aisles. Instead, the temple structure had four central posts used to hold up the roof. It is this unique construction footprint that led the archaeologists to believe that this was a site of a temple. Previously excavated sites that have already been identified as religious locations bear the same arrangement of support posts meaning that there was a standard layout for this type of construction. Because the only remaining evidence of this structure is the remnants of these support beams, it is unclear if this structure was dedicated to any specific deity, or if it was used as a pantheon to the Norse gods as a whole. A strange new magnetoelectric effect has been discovered in a symmetrical crystal, presented by ScienceAlert.com. When you start talking about the properties of different crystals, mainstream people lump you in with the crunchy New Age movement. Scientifically, though, we know that certain crystals are influenced by the electromagnetic spectrum and can influence that spectrum themselves. Recently, scientists have detected an odd electromagnetic effect in a symmetrically formed crystal, one where there should be no effect. This crystal, known as langacite, has a structure that should eliminate any chance of electromagnetism. If the crystal has a high degree of symmetry, for example, if one side of the crystal is exactly the mirror image of the other side, then for theoretical reasons, there can be no magnetoelectric effect, says Andrei Pemenov of Vienna University of Technology. What made this stone unique was the inclusion of holmium atoms, which offset the symmetry just enough to make it susceptible to both electricity and magnetism. By itself, langacite has no charge. It's quite stable. When it's placed in proximity of a moderate magnetic charge, that's when things start to get weird. The magnetic field causes the holmium atoms to change their quantum state to one of magnetization, disrupting the internal symmetry, polarizing the crystal. The next step in research is to find out if the application of a strong electrical field will inversely affect the magnetization of the crystal. While this may all sound a bit esoteric, the practical application has tremendous potential. Computer hard drives utilize electromagnetism, requiring large amounts of energy. If langacite can be easily manipulated by both electrical and magnetic fields, we could see a massive leap forward in computing technology. That's all that I have for this installment of the Esoteric News Briefs. The next Esoteric Book Club episode will be released on October 31st with our first Blue Moon special. I'll be reviewing two books directly related to my neck of the woods, West Virginia. Until then, stay safe and stay weird. <laughs>